Welcome to episode one of Cases Untold, the podcast for true crime cases that rarely get covered. I'm your host, Jenny. The first case this podcast will cover is the crazy fraud of Crazy Eddie. It may be well known for the generation of the 70s and 80s, but for those alive after, they may not have been as exposed to this case, and therefore, I want to bring it to light again. Before diving in, please remember that all the case sources are listed in the description below. Now let's dive in. It's the 1970s in Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn's one of the five boroughs of New York City, and this is a time in the city when the subway trains were covered in graffiti inside and out. Crime was running rampant. Women were warned to remove jewelry while walking the streets for fear that their necklaces would be ripped from their necks. And due to this crime, there was actually a decline in population by the end of the 1970s. Nearly a million people had left, and that population loss would not be recouped for another 20 years. You could find kids playing stickball in the streets, teens smoking, cigarettes, wearing their American jeans, and buttoned-up shirts. Times were simpler and more laid back. If your rent was $300 a month, you could hang out in the afternoons. And additionally, there was a lack of tall buildings and the ubiquity of mom-and-pop shops. One of these mom-and-pop shops was a consumer electronics chain that began its journey in 1970 with a single store on Kings Highway, Brooklyn, called Sights and Sound which would later be named Crazy Eddie. It was founded by Sam M. Antar and Ronnie Gindy. However, in 1971, Eddie Antar, who is Sam Antar's son, purchased Ronnie Gindy's share of Sights and Sound for $25,000 in cash. Eddie Antar now owned two-thirds of Sights and Sound, and his father, Sam Antar, owned one-third of Sights and Sounds. From there on out, Eddie was the president and CEO, while his cousin, also named Sam Antar, was the CFO. In order to not have any confusion when I refer to Sam again in the future, it's to reference the CFO, who was Eddie's cousin. Sights and Sounds name officially changed to Crazy Eddie's and would soon become known for selling electronics goods at cut-rate prices, and even had their tagline as, Crazy Eddie's prices are insane! And it sounded just like that. With this, they took their aggressive sales tactics and outrageous TV and radio commercials, showcasing insane prices. Crazy Eddie's expanded rapidly and had over 43 stores in four northeast states, and they reported over $300 million in sales. Now that figure is where our true crime story of fraudulent business practices, underreporting income, skimming sales taxes, and paying employees off the books come into play. This is an 18-year crime spree conducted in the light of day that showcases the multitude of deceitful methods that white-collar criminals routinely, routinely engage in. Now, you may be wondering, just like I was, how in the hell did an electronics chain store commit such tactful fraud for years up until the moment that the cousin duo, Eddie and Sam, sold the business? The first requires a little history lesson on fair trade acts in the U.S., which I will give an account of here. Basically, consumer electronics retailers were subject to fair trade laws in the 70s and 80s, and these required retailers to sell merchandise at the same price to avoid price competition for products. These laws were having a really bad negative effect on small retailers, such as Crazy Eddie, since the smaller retailers had lower overheads. They were unable to compete with those larger stores. However, many small businesses were struggling to survive. Eddie resorted to circumventing the fair trade laws by discounting merchandise to customers. However, the manufacturers act However, 
manufacturers retaliated against Eddie by refusing to sell his business any products. Eddie was forced to then buy excess merchandise from some other retailers, as well as access markets outside of the U.S. to purchase merchandise. Crazy Eddie's culture, business-wise, became known as Retailing Revolutionary. In 1972, the fair trade laws were abolished and retailers no longer had to sell the products for the same price that they bought them at from the manufacturers. It was at this time that Eddie became a retail revolutionary and a hero to the New York metropolitan consumer as he made strides in helping abolish the fair trade laws. I even found that Crazy Eddie had better name recognition than Coca-Cola at this time for the New York metropolitan consumers. How did Eddie inspire such a loyal, passionate fan base? He was a persuasive guy and good at giving the American consumer what they craved, hope. According to his cousin, Sam Antar, Eddie would repeatedly say that, quote, people live on hope, end quote. And with this, he was able to manipulate an entire following into this us versus them mentality, when in reality, the people should have been against Eddie. The us was the consumers and Crazy Eddie, and the them was the government. Keeping the government out of small businesses allowed for consumers to get what they wanted. However, this was also the type of mindset that was instilled into his family and his employees. Sam Antar claimed that he was just brought up in this type of scheme and really fell into it. Sam had said that the Antar family, with Eddie at its head, would exploit the hopes and dreams of the American consumer to get even more money. As well as being against the government, not just in mindset to the American consumer, but also when it came to paying up when it was due. Cash sales are routinely skimmed to steal sales taxes and avoid paying income taxes. They believe that the government did not deserve Crazy Eddie's hard-earned money. Eddie would not be able to sustain a business giving such large discounts to his customers if he had done stuff by the books. Hence where the fraud comes in, making the company a lot more profitable. Now, into the specific details and dates of just the kinds of fraud that transpired. This information comes directly from Sam Antar's website, who explained their approach to being profitable and fooling the U.S. government, as well as a bunch of the other sources that I included in the links below. From 1970 to 1979, Crazy Eddie's began tax evasion by skimming cash sales from customers to avoid income and sales tax, evading payroll taxes by paying employees in cash or off the books, rather than reporting the income to the IRS, and reporting phony or exaggerated insurance claims to increase the profits. This was all as a private company, and it was being prepared all of this time before the eventual plan to go public in the 1980s. 1980 started that plan to go public, which meant more risky fraud, but a higher reward. Crazy Eddie as a public company, Eddie and Sam could unload the company stock at inflated prices on unsuspecting victims. Again, they're in the business of not just selling electronics goods, but hope. This would be more profitable than their initial fraud of just skimming cash sales, tax evasion, and paying employees off the books. They anticipated getting a bigger bang for the buck by inflating earnings as a public company. This was also the year that Sam Antar graduated from college with an accounting degree, and the Antar family, with Eddie leading it, could make Sam a de facto chief financial officer in order to bring their fraud 
just to the next level. Now I will explain just how they plan to inflate their wealth by going public. Sam Antar actually gave a breakdown of how this worked, which I will give that account here and now with all the examples that he decided to use because it made the most sense. But when a public company reports a profit, those earnings are divided by each share of common stock outstanding to compute earnings per share. If a company reported a $1 million profit and has a million shares outstanding, its earnings per share would be $1 per share. Pretty easy. It's, you know, some division going on there. <laughs> a public company stock is traded at what is known a price earnings ratio. If the stock that he mentioned before went from a $1 a share to $30 per share, its price earnings ratio or PE ratio would be 30 to $30 per share or a 30 PE ratio. So if that company's management inflated the earnings by $1 million or $1 per share, it would report earnings of $2 million or $2 per share, assuming that ratio stays at the 30 that he gave us before. So if the earnings were now $2 per share, the price per share would increase, increase to $60. And a bunch, the only thing that is there is that 30 price earnings ratio multiplied by the $2 earnings per share, which would end up being that $60 price per share. So that's where we get the increase. And then the company's market capitalization would increase by $30 million. So $30 price per share multiplied by the $1 million, 1 million of shares outstanding to equal that $30 million. So with everything being held equal and inflating those earnings by only $1 million or $1 per share, it actually added $30 million to the company's total like evaluation. So the insiders could then pocket the $30 per share of that ill-gotten gains. And before Crazy Eddie went public, all of the shares were owned by the Antar family. So if the Antar family still owned 1 million shares of the stock, trading at a P.E. ratio of 30, and if they artificially inflated the earnings by even $1 million or $1 per share, the collective wealth would have increased by $30 million. Just think about that. That's absolutely crazy. Thus, that small $1 million deception created $30 million of fictitious wealth. By comparison, their skimming $1 million from the cash sales would have only saved them about $300,000 of income, assuming that 30% tax rate. Now that I've mentioned all of that fictitious gains, this was ironically also the time in 1980 that Crazy Eddie had to legitimize the profits before going public so that they could commit even bigger fraud than they were doing. So Sam, Eddie's cousin, began wielding down the cash sales skimming before going public. So in 1981, Sam began working for a tax auditing company to finish out his requirements as a licensed CPA. And he was paid off the books by Eddie and, and the family to, you know, moonlight there while he was working full time at the tax auditing agency. And one of the goals of being there was to learn how to really take advantage of the auditors, which was especially important if Crazy Eddie was to become a public company. Finally, on September 13th of 1984, Crazy Eddie had its initial public offering, also known as an IPO, and investors quickly gobbled up about 1.7 million of the newly issued company shares at $8 per share. So this is when they went public. 
Over the course of the next three years, the Antar family members unloaded most of their shares and pocketed over $90 million in proceeds from unsuspecting investors as Crazy Eddie's stock skyrocketed. Now, this was a great gig for the Antar family, including Eddie especially, and Sam, as well as all their other family members and friends. But the Antars planned to keep their auditors at bay as well in order to continue the charade. And not finding out about the fraud by use of these various stalling techniques. So Crazy Eddie's end-of-year audits were expected to last about eight weeks, as Sam had explained it. And the auditing company planned to complete its field work in these regular increments during that eight-week period. So normally by the sixth week, of those eight, they would have expected to have completed 75% of field work, which is, you know, going through all of their financial documents. And Sam made sure that this actually didn't happen. So he made a bunch of stalling techniques aimed to slow them down. The goal for him was that they would only have about 25% of the work completed by week six and have 75% left to go. So to get the work done and satisfy Crazy Eddie's management, they would have to skimp on certain aspects of the procedures and the plan worked every single year to my surprise reading that it was absolutely insane but how did they do all of these stalling techniques you ask well the other part of it was that they took advantage of the humanity in the auditors so many of the beginning legwork that is done for these audits are completed by the inexperienced just out of college grads between the ages of 22 to 29, and they're normally single males. So Sam was actually part of that demographic, and he knew this and took full advantage of it. He knew it was tedious work and that it was difficult for them to pay close attention to it. It was relatively easy to distract them without ever being blamed for obstructing their work. Rather than overtly interfering, it was to subtly distract them with cute, crazy Eddie female employees that would always report directly to Sam. He encouraged the female employees to flirt and get friendly with their young male auditors and to discuss the audit issues with them over lunch or dinner on Crazy Eddie's tab. The auditors wasted valuable time getting really chummy with the management and female employees rather than paying attention to their jobs. As the scheduled completion of the audit neared, the auditors would rush to complete the field work and failed to undertake key audit procedures, which enabled them to easily inflate their reported earnings. So as Sam Antar has said on his website, he puts, quote, you can steal anything with a smile, end quote. Now, there was a ton of detail into each and every single money scheme that Crazy Eddie did. However, for time's sake, I won't dive extremely into each and every one of them, but I'll just give a summary of what they were and the overall effect that they had. So first was the Panama pump. This was a money laundering scheme that uh, had cash skimmed from Crazy Eddie before its initial IPO offering. And it was laundered back into the company after it went public in order to inflate the revenues and reported profits. Then second, we have the fraudulent assets valuation. This would do overstated inventory assets to inflate uh, the reported profits. Third, we had the understated accounts payable to inflate reported profits. Inventory was received by Crazy Eddie before the end of the accounting period. And so 
where it was invoiced by suppliers and reflected as shipped to the company in the subsequent accounting period. So if you're familiar with accounting, it's kind of just technical there. But fourth, we had understated accounts payables in order to inflate reported profits. This is known as uh, debit memo fraud. So Crazy Eddie actually claimed fictitious purchase discounts and trade allowances to understate their accounts payable and inflate their reported profits. Fifth was inflated comparable store sales. So Crazy Eddie reported these bulk sales to non-end users, which are distributors and other retailers that originated from its main offices as sales to end user consumers in stores that existed in both the current and period year accounting periods. And sixth, there is the premature recognition of sales to inflate uh, revenue. This could be comparable to store and sale earnings. So Crazy Eddie would invoice certain distributors for merchandise and it simultaneously received the checks dated before the end of the accounting period. So the company shipped the merchandise to the distributors and cashed the checks in the subsequent accounting period. So it wasn't all at the same time. Then seven was covering up the crimes ultimately. So subtle changes in accounting policies were used by Crazy Eddie to cover up specific accounting frauds. Ultimately, what would cause the downfall at Crazy Eddie's would be the internal feuding of the family and auditing procedures ultimately changing. So in the end of 1987, Crazy Eddie started losing money for the first time in almost two decades. So the value of Crazy Eddie's stock tanked like immensely. The remaining of the shares of Crazy Eddie's stock held by the Antars had relatively little value and this started to breed jealousy plans for revenge within the family, and everything bad that you could imagine. Eddie and his cousin Sam had heard rumors of a possible hostile takeover by the parties interested in buying the company while the stock was tanked, and they believed that other members of the family were involved with this, hence Eddie and Sam tried to get ahead of it. The plan was to raise money and take the company private with an unsuspecting third party in an effort to cover up all the fraud. So they wanted to just get in, get out, take it from being public. They were approached by two billionaires at the time, but they went with Sam Belsberg. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correct, but it was Sam Belsberg as a billionaire partner on a management-led buyout of Crazy Eddie. And after this was when retaliation struck. Eddie let this buyout of finally having complete control go to his head. He fired two important people from the company that were close personal friends of Eddie's brothers and his father, and Eddie wanted people he could no longer trust out of the business. These two fired family friends actually teamed up with Eddie's father and his brothers in order to orchestrate a plan to get revenge on Eddie for throwing them out of the company. So they planned to blame Eddie and his allies remaining at the company for the frauds. They contacted the Securities and Exchange Commission and told them that a massive fraud that was orchestrated by Eddie at the company while keeping themselves at a safe arm's length away from the fraud. From there, the remaining Antar family, including Eddie, were thrown out of the company as it had been taken over and investigated by a third party. By February of 1990, both Sam Antar, the cousin of Eddie, and Eddie Antar were brought up on charges. However, at this point, Eddie actually fled the country to go to Israel instead of comply with the court order. And in June of 1992, Eddie Antar was captured in Yavin, Israel, and a court was held in Newark, New Jersey. There was a bunch of trials that came together in the end, such as class action lawsuits against 
against him, civil suits, criminal ones for the fraud. Um, ultimately, Eddie Antar was found guilty on 17 accounts of fraud and was sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison. He served his time and actually died in 2016 from liver cancer. His cousin, Sam, pleaded guilty to three counts of fraud and got a better type of deal. Since Eddie had fled the country, Sam offered to testify for the federal prosecutors in exchange for immunity. So he actually avoided jail time for exchange in his testimony, but he was sentenced to six months of house arrest and received 1,200 hours of community service and three years of probation, as well as paying more than $10,000 in fine. And now Sam works as a forensic accountant helping to detect fraud. Talk about an extreme full circle moment. Uh, as well as for his other family, they did not receive any jail time. Well, that was the entire case. I definitely could have done some more details for you guys. If you would want to maybe hear a part two going directly into a scheme such as the Panama Pump um, or their inventory fraud specifically, I definitely could. But... I think this was just such a great overview of seeing exactly what went down, the dates, and how this was an entire 18-year crime spree that just did not come to the light of day for so, so long. And it wasn't until they got busted by, you know, the Security and Exchange Commission and their own family <laughs> kind of brought them there, so... I really hope you liked it and that you'd be willing to listen to some more episodes. I'm hopefully going to try to do one episode a month, um, if I can, two. But send me some cases that you rarely ever hear, and I would love to cover them, whether they're fraud or um, murder, kidnapping, uh, anything under the sun. I think it would be really great. Strange disappearances. I'm game for all kinds of true crime stories.